Some of you may have heard that I've been battling this small bulging disc in my in my spine recently. It's been causing me all kinds of back tightness and pain in my leg and things like that. And so for a few weeks, I resisted going to the doctor because, you know, I thought it's tight down there. So I'm just going to do these stretches. And every day I would sit on the ground and try and contort my body in ways that a 45 year old with a lower back injury probably shouldn't contort. So anyway, I finally went to my physical therapist. And when I described my symptoms and how I'd been stretching and, you know, stretching forward and things, <laughs> he says, don't do that anymore. He told me that I had a disc injury and that stretching in that direction and in that way was actually making things worse, even though I thought it was feeling better. My intuition was to stretch out the sore muscles, but what I really needed was to address my core issues. Oftentimes when we're under stress, like, you know, during a global pandemic, we search for things that we think will make us better. We work harder because we're afraid our businesses or our work opportunities might dry up. We work more for more hours and more days in a row than we would normally. Or we look for an escape. We watch more TV or we get off the grid and just skip town or we try and get our minds off of the stressor. But what if for all of our striving and all of our avoiding, what if we were actually making things worse, like stretching in the wrong direction? What if what we need more than ever is to address our core, our core relationship that is, our, our, our connection with the living God. In our anxious thoughts, in our wounds, in our unmet relationship needs, in our grief, and even in our joy, is not the God of the universe the one that Jesus invites us to address as Father? Is he not able to meet us where we are and often offer us more of the core of what we need and who we are than all of our striving and worry and escapism ever, ever could? See, it's my conviction that in talking with followers of Jesus and being a follower of Jesus myself, that the problem is not one of cognitive belief. Like most Christians believe that God loves them and that he wants us to pray. The hang up seems to be that deep down, we just don't connect with him emotionally. We don't believe he really has the time or the desire to hear our simple and yes, sometimes selfish prayers. And so we just don't, we don't pray. And that's why I'm taking a break from our sermon series in the book of Acts to preach one of my favorite passages on prayer, Luke 11, 1 through 13. Would you pray with me? Father, who is in heaven, bless you for this word that not only teaches us how to pray, but encourages us to pray. Thank you for everything that you said while you were here, Lord Jesus. Thank you for this particular message to us in such a time as this. Won't you, by the power of your Spirit, encourage us, not just to pray, but to pray to the Father who loves us, who longs for us to be in relationship with him. Amen. So in the story world of the scripture we just heard read by the Trollson family and Tommy, thank you to you guys, Jesus has been praying. And when he's done, his disciples say to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John also taught his disciples. See, it's not so much that Jesus's disciples don't know how to pray. I mean, they were Jewish men who had grown up praying. They had the Psalms and the Shema and dozens and dozens of liturgical prayers to choose from. But what they did not have was the type of relationship that Jesus had with the Father. 
And I believe the disciples asked Jesus to teach them because of the quality of his praying. So they asked Jesus, teach us to pray. And he answers them in three clear ways. First of all, he gives them a structure of prayer. Secondly, he gives them the content of a prayer. And third, he gives encouragement to pray. I want to take each of these three things in turn, and we'll start with structure. So when I think about our congregation, I recognize dozens of different personality types and different church experiences, different dispositions and worship styles. You know, some of you love the idea of structure, and you thrive in a more liturgical environment while others like the idea of a more free-flowing, extemporaneous-style worship and prayer experience. And I'm not really convinced that there's a right or wrong way, except that we need both of those things to be healthy. Now, for those who lean toward written, liturgical-styled prayers, we need to be careful that in all of our thoughts and words and theologically meaty prayers, that we're engaging our hearts as well as our minds. And then for those who are more prone to being conversational with God, offering up emotional, heartfelt prayers, we need to be sure that we're praying to the God of the scriptures, not to the God of our own desires and our own emotions. And I think it's significant that when Jesus teaches us to pray, he gives us structure. And I don't think he gives us that structure to limit our prayers, but to help jumpstart them. So if you've ever been in a season where you just don't know where to start in prayer, Jesus gives us a structure. The Lord's Prayer is often what we call it. It's here in Luke 11 or in Matthew 6, similar versions of the same core prayer. And the second thing is that Jesus gives us content to pray. Like if you've ever been burdened by wondering what to pray for, or if your prayers are in line with God's will, or if you're doing it right, then Jesus gives us a starting point. His prayer reshapes our perspective. Because we live in a me-first world, and because of that, we need this type of entry point where Jesus has us pray, beginning with God. And it's not only beginning with God, but beginning with the Father. Jesus says, Abba, which is a, an intimate invitation to pray personally and, and intimately to our Heavenly Father, the Creator of heaven and earth. And Jesus' first instruction is that we give honor to God and that we pray that his kingdom, which, which means his ways and his will, would reign. Not our will and, and, and desires to reign. You, you see the difference there. I've got all kinds of things I think would make the world better. But what we're saying is I trust in this father who, who knows better than me who created all of these things, and I pray that his will and his way would be done. And when we're praying for God's kingdom to come, we're praying for all of the things that we really desire the most, for, for peace and for justice, for healing, for beauty, for belonging, for holiness, for, for nothing short of biblical peace or shalom. And then next we're taught to pray for daily provision. And if you notice in the prayer, it's not just my daily provision, but our daily bread or our daily provision. The prayer is plural, so it's literally impossible to pray this prayer that Jesus gives us and to do it selfishly. So when you pray these words of Jesus, you're praying with and for the whole community. In praying for daily bread, then, we're praying that we and all people would have the daily necessities. 
And you could just take time here and you could go extemporaneous. In fact, if you've got time to pause your video and you'd want to, you could pause here and brainstorm with yourself or with people that you're with and, and decide how you want to riff off of this idea. So you could pray for food for the starving, or healing for the sick, or the eradication of the coronavirus, or racial reconciliation. You could pray for love for the lonely and comfort for the broken. You could pray for shelter for the homeless and pray that Jesus might show us how to be answered to all of these prayers. We pray for these things daily because it reminds us that God is in control. God is our provider. Verse 4 invites us to seek forgiveness for our sin debt. And it reminds us that since we receive forgiveness from our Father, we ought to relieve the debt of those who have wronged us, who maybe even owe us something. And finally, we admit our weakness and dependence on God when we ask for mercy from testing, because we know that when put to the test of temptation, we are very prone to wander and to fail. So, Jesus here gives us a structure, a place to start, and then he gives us content, words and ideas to pray. But for me, the power of this passage is in his encouragement. You know, there are hundreds, if not thousands of books out there about how to pray, techniques and styles and words and methods, but technique is rarely our problem in prayer. Our problem is usually rooted in the fact that we wonder if there is really anyone out there listening at all. And if they do hear us, if God is really there hearing our little prayers, does he really care for little old me and my little community or my little family? And will this God hear me even though he already knows all the things that I've said and done? It makes me want to hide sometimes rather than to pray. So Jesus addresses this through two parables that reveal the true heart of God, the one to whom we're praying to. And the first one is often titled, The Friend at Midnight. And it's one of the most misinterpreted parables in the parables, which is saying something because the parables are kind of weird. Okay, so how it's often misinterpreted is that people say, the Friend at Midnight parable teaches us to practice persistence in prayer. And what it appears to say is that God doesn't really want to answer our prayers, but if we bug him enough, if we're persistent enough, we'll wear him down and he'll concede. But that interpretation just doesn't hold up against the rest of the passage that seems to show us that God gives good gifts to his children. Now, doesn't this strike you as strange or even contradictory? The reason is because the meaning of the passage is obscure due to major cultural differences that we have with Jesus and his time period, and the linguistic differences, like we just are not thinking and speaking in Greek right now. So both of which of these things have monumental implications for how we understand the text. So let me just begin with the cultural differences. One of the most important social values that we talk about all the time when I'm, I'm preaching through these texts is that in Jesus's day, the showing of hospitality was of utmost importance, and it still is in many, many parts of the world. So here's the, uh, the cliche example. If a visitor were to come to your house, you were expected to house them and feed them and entertain them and most of all, protect their honor. Failure to provide an overabundance of food uh, to a visitor would have dishonored the guest and brought dishonor upon you, the host. 
And there's one more caveat to this that's harder for us Western Americans to get our minds around, but it's this. Hospitality was a communal responsibility. Everyone knew it, and everyone in a village played by the rules. So the host in our story seems to need more bread, not because he doesn't have any bread, but because what he has probably isn't fresh. And it would be insulting to offer the, get, the guest day-old bread. So what he has to do is to find out who had made fresh bread that day, which, of course, would have been common knowledge in a first-century village. You see, in typical villages like the one in our story, women would bake bread together every few days. So you have this idea of some of the women went out on Tuesday, other women went out on Wednesday. They had shared appliances. And these small villages were only like six acres in area. And so they would have maybe a couple mills and three or four ovens at the center of town that everybody would use. And so the wife, presumably this man is married in the, in the story, would know who had baked bread that day. And she would send her husband off to find the, the house with the fresh bread. So the man goes to his friend at midnight and he fully expects to get bread. I mean, after all, in a culture where hospitality is expected, uh, asking for bread is a most humble request, no matter what time of night. In fact, failure of the friend to meet the host's humble request for bread would have brought dishonor on his name and on the whole village. Okay, so keep that in mind. It was assumed that anyone going to someone's house, even at midnight, it's a no-brainer. They would just give them bread without any kind of problem. Okay, now we need to go into where language is going to be helpful. First of all, in verse 5, in the Greek, it's actually a question. So it goes something like this. Jesus says, can you imagine a scenario like this? And the answer that Jesus is expecting is that no one in his audience could possibly imagine a scenario where a friend would say, I don't feel like providing hospitality tonight. My friends, my, my kids are in bed and my wife's asleep. Go back and come back another time. Like that's just inconceivable to the ancient Near Eastern mind. In fact, people would probably hear that story and laugh out loud. It's just ridiculous. And so what Jesus is doing is using a common illustration, a common style of teaching where he proposes a situation common to everyday life, but then he twists it to the point of absurdity in order to make a point or an impression. Now, verse 8 in the story is the punchline, and it hinges on the mistranslation of this word, anaideon, which is sometimes translated as persistence. But if you follow a word study on Anideon, it shows that this word is only translated as persistence one other time in all of the known Greek documents between the Old Testament translated into Greek up into the time of the Gospels. Do you know what it's translated as the rest of the time? It's translated as shamelessness or the avoidance of shame. So the punchline goes like this. It's midnight. The man's children are asleep, and he doesn't want to get up to give the man bread. Maybe he was having a good dream or something. But because he will not bring shame upon his name or upon his village, he will, of course, get up and give him bread. Yeah, but also so much more. He'll give his friend and neighbor whatever he needs to provide hospitality to the visitor. And Jesus is saying, the God you pray to 
the one whom I call Father and am now inviting you to call Father, he has every bit as much honor and integrity as the man in the story. Plus, he actually loves you. Now, I don't know about you, but sometimes I feel like I don't even want to pray. Sometimes I just don't experience the feelings of love for God inside of me. I feel apathetic from time to time. And this parable gives me great hope and confidence in approaching God. It tells me that a humble request for bread or whatever it is that I'm needing is met with everything that God has. The story tells me that the secret to praying is not found in technique. It's found in knowing the extravagant love of the God to whom we pray. So in light of this great news, ask, seek, knock. These are called conditional imperatives. I know, nerding out now. But what that means is, is that you don't have to ask a certain number of times before God hears you. It means to live as one who comes to God often and seeks his face because the God you seek is the kind of God who answers generously. Okay? And, and notice the shift from second person to third person. Jesus tells his listeners to ask, seek, and knock. And then he opens up the possibility to all of us when he says to everyone who asks, seeks, and knocks. Right? Then God will provide. Now, we move to verse 11, and it's the same sort of Greek structure as verse 5. So it's a question. Can you imagine a scenario in which one of you fathers is asked by his son for a fish, and you give him a snake? No way! Or if he asks for an egg, you will not give him a scorpion, will you? No, I mean, it's ridiculous. But of course, we're in 21st century Bellingham, and when was the last time your child asked for a fish or just a random egg. So I thought it would be helpful to modernize the parable with some culturally recognizable requests. I'll ask for some water, so I will oblige. Okay, go sit down. I'll bring you that water. Hey. <laughs> okay, chug it down. My daughter's asked for a snack. I think I know how to give good things. Potato bug. And a slug. Let's see how she likes that. Yourself. Okay, so hopefully you got the point. If you know me and how I love my kids, I would not give my daughter who's asking for water vinegar water or put a slug on Stella's snack, okay? I just love them too much, and that's kind of Jesus's point. His point is, if you think it's normal for fallen, imperfect, sinful, evil human fathers like me to give their children good gifts, how much more will your heavenly Father give to you when you ask Him? The Holy Spirit, the Counselor, the one who reminds us of our adoption into God's family, the one who teaches us and helps us to become more like Christ, the one who equips every follower of Jesus so they can participate in the building up of the church and the kingdom of God. That's what the Father will give us when we ask. The Lord teaches us to pray. He gives us structure when we don't know where to start. He gives us words of content to help us pray and get on the right track. And he offers us 
encouragement to pray because our Father is more loving and more generous than even the best social conventions and family kindness we can imagine. I imagine there's only one thing left to do, and that is to pray. Father, our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. May your kingdom come with all its glory and goodness and justice and mercy and loving kindness. Please give us this day our daily bread. Everything, safety and provision and food and love and shelter and the things that we need deep down like intimacy with you, Lord Jesus, provide those things. And forgive us for our sin debt and on our debt to the world when we abuse the earth and other people. Lord Jesus, have mercy. And as we receive your mercy, help us to extend it to others, even and especially those who have wronged us. May we be gracious like you are. And please, Lord, do not lead us into tests that turn to temptations because we are weak and we often will choose the darkness. Have mercy on us, Lord. Amen.